I knew exactly what to do, but in a much more real sense, I had no idea what to do. What would it look like if you made that into a Venn diagram? No, we need an acronym for that. It's Peggy Enderly, and you're listening to The Art of Ven, the learning and talent podcast that's about your thriving in life and ministry. We take ideas that may feel like they're in opposition and explore how they go together. Today, my guest is Jason Gabry, the Regional Ministry Director of New York, New Jersey. Hey, Jason. Hey, Peggy. I'm so glad you're joining us today and to hear more about what's happening on the ground, especially in New York. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here with you today. Well, you weren't a student with university, and you didn't come on staff right away. You had another career in acting. Mm-hmm. What led you to come on staff? I knew uh, somebody who used to work on staff in the 90s named Bruce Kuhn, and Bruce was sort of a friend and a mentor of mine, and I knew he worked for InterVarsity, but not having been a student with InterVarsity, I wasn't sure what InterVarsity was. And I decided to meet up with Bruce after a bunch of auditions. And we sat down at Sparrows in Times Square. And I told him about this desire I had to maybe do missions for a year or something like that. And he said, well, if you're serious about doing missions, you got to come to Urbana. It'll be great. And I said, okay. What's Urbana? You know, <laughs> so anyway, Urbana was my uh, first exposure to InterVarsity. And at the end of that time, I uh, left with a staff application. That's how I got connected to InterVarsity. I don't know that I know any other actors pre InterVarsity <laughs> staff. I'm sure there have been ways you've connected your experience as an actor to things that you do on staff and things that help you in your staff work. What are some of those things? Some of the preparation has been in the theater world, the ability to analyze texts and do scene study translates really well to manuscript study. The curiosity about what is this person thinking and how are they experiencing this? So that's really helpful. Obviously, uh, teaching and leading and platform skills have been transferable. And also directing. So I spent the second, really more than half now of my InterVarsity career as a ministry director. And there's just something about directing that's very transferable from theater to InterVarsity. I know sometimes when we've done Mark study, we have students act out scenes, and it Uh definitely gives a different take for, for understanding the scripture. Totally. Yeah, even just hearing scripture read well can tease out meanings and, and thoughts and perspectives that you don't see before. But certainly acting it out and living into the story is really meaningful. So as the RD for the region where COVID-19 is probably having the most significant impact, how have you seen your staff being impacted by being there? The trend lines are getting better uh, at this point. There are fewer people who are being getting sick and being hospitalized and dying, and thanks be to God for all of that. It has been a very intense about six weeks or so, I guess now, particularly in New York City and Long Island, 
And so we're caring for staff pretty intentionally. You know, we've just started doing things uh, together and experimenting in new ways and working across the region collaboratively. I'm so proud of my team, so proud of the people I work with and inspired by their leadership. There is such a large variety of responses from our staff. Some are ready to go. They are ready to take ministry online. And some are overwhelmed and feel like they can't hardly do any ministry. As a regional director, how do you lead knowing that there's such diversity of responses to our current pandemic? I think as a leader, whether you're leading a region or a group of students, I think it's helpful to to know that there's that diversity in the room. And one of the first things that we did was we we realized that the structures of communication that we had as they currently existed wouldn't serve us. And so we made a decision to start a daily call where we could get everybody into the Zoom room for half an hour and we could learn together what is this like for you? What how are you experiencing this? Uh what are your needs? What are you seeing that's encouraging you? What are you seeing that's that's a heavy lift? And then uh, we've worked hard to create what Cotter, who's a professor of change leadership in uh, Harvard, uh, calls a dual operating system. So we have continued to work through our management structures, our regional directors and associate regional directors and uh, area directors and so on. And But we've also created this whole other system that works alongside that, which is all about innovation, responding quickly to the crisis, innovating, creating new ideas, accomplishing projects. And it's been great because it's given, it's given the activators a place to activate, and it's given the, the shepherds uh, places to shep, and it's given everybody a place to bring as much of themselves as they can into the community. And, and by flattening the communication lines into some common spaces. It's really helped us. Sometimes I think we we judge ourselves and we judge as we compare and we judge others. And so how do you encourage staff who are critical of where they're at and wanting to be validated for where they're at? How do you encourage them? Imperfectly is the short answer. Uh, but I, I think what we want to communicate and what we try to communicate is that every contribution, every gift is valuable. The, the temptation uh, uh, that most staff get into is they compare their area of vulnerability to another staff's strength. So if I'm not an activator, if I'm a shepherd and I'm, I'm pastoral and I'm really, really I, I'm somebody who feels like we just need to lament this. This is so heavy and this feels so hard. And I, I just, and if you're kind of in that space and you look at the activators who are like, you know, seven blocks ahead of you, it's easy to feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm not a good campus staff. What we, what we need to do is say, and create structures that say, everybody's experience and gifts are valuable. If we don't lament this, we we won't move towards revival because repentance, lament, um, the ability to sit in the grief uh, and the heaviness of it is really critically important. 
we need our our shepherds and our and our empathetic staff to say this is about serving a community of people that is going through grief. And on the other hand, we need our we need our activators to say, oh my gosh, 2030 calling. Like what happens if we have a whole community of people we've invested in for three years, four years, who now have lots of time on their hands? Like if we can make this turn right, think of the small groups we, we could lead. Think of the the new corners and campuses we can get to. So they need each other. Long answer, but. So we're Facebook friends. And one thing I see on Facebook is uh, you living out being an Anglican friar. And just like you were an actor before, I don't think there's another Anglican friar in InterVarsity. <laughs> For those that aren't familiar, can you share a little bit about what it means to be an Anglican friar and how you've decided to join the order? First, most people don't know what friars are. And so a friar is just a, it's an older word for, for brother. And it was the term that was used in the 13th century when St. Francis and St. Dominic, these two incredible figures in the church, really began a reform movement. The church was in an unhealthy place. They began a reform movement. And what they wanted to do was take the robust, intimate spirituality of the monastery that was cloistered off away from the rest of the culture and bring that into, in, in St. Francis's context, the, the marketplace, the, the place where people were buying and selling and trading and working and kind of that, that the market square. In St. Dominic's case, the, the marketplace of ideas, the universities, the places where people were, were learning. And so they weren't monks proper uh, in that they didn't live in these cloistered monasteries. They were, they were referred to as the friars, the brothers, the, the, these communities of, of men and women who were committed to a particular way of living their Christian faith on mission. And um, it's actually because of a Roman Catholic Dominican community that my faith really came to life went into that stage that so many students go into where their their faith becomes their own in college. And that's what happened to me. Fast forward 15 plus years, I'm very happily Anglican. I was in a stage in my own leadership where, um, and I think this happens to all leaders, when you get into your 30s and you have children and your responsibilities look different, like the daily quiet time routine no longer feels like it's working to sustain your spiritual life. And I got to that point as a leader, I was, I was wrestling with some really big challenges and I felt like I needed a spirituality that was big and that was bigger than the practices that I had. And I, I was hungry for that. So I started leaning into the Anglican tradition and after meeting an Anglican friar at an intervarsity uh, event, I thought, you know, being connected to these Dominicans was so important to me when I was growing in my faith I wonder if there are any Anglican Dominicans. So I literally went on Google and I said, I Googled Anglican Dominicans. And it turned out that there was an Anglican Dominican who worked three blocks away from my office in New York City. And I just thought, well, I got to meet this person and figure this out. And that began um, a process of me exploring what it would mean to be 
to live out a monastic kind of spirituality in the midst of life and family and InterVarsity's ministry. It means that I am, uh, I live with a certain degree of simplicity and um, made specific commitments to the community and to a, a way of life that uh, is an attempt to follow Jesus. And as an Anglican friar, you've taken a vow of simplicity, purity, and obedience. And I know that staff, especially after a justice program, will take a vow of simplicity. How is taking a vow as a friar maybe different from somebody who feels a conviction to take a vow? I think it's accountability. I think when somebody you know, who goes on an urban uh, or justice program or a global justice program um, sees and the need and says, I believe God's calling me to a life of simplicity. I think they're probably right. The big difference is there is a group of people to whom I'm accountable for my discipline of simplicity as a friar. I have to write a report to my superiors in the order and tell them, how am I living out the, the, the value of purity in my relationships? How am I living out the, the value of obedience uh, and community, as well as living into the way of doing ministry that we sort of share together? I love that. I love the communities we have for that accountability. You're married to Sophia, who's also on staff, and you have two daughters. And as I think about your vow of simplicity, I'm guessing maybe they haven't taken the same vow. <laughs> they have not. So how do you uh, live with your dedication? And not that they don't value simplicity, but they haven't taken the same vow. In every family, we negotiate in real time. Sophia and I both were a part of the New York City justice program many, many years ago. We both, out of that experience, sensed a long-term call to ministry in New York City. We also, at the time, sensed a call to simplicity together. And so we, we live in a building in a community that aligns with those values. You know, we both raise funds with InterVarsity staff, so we've sought to live that out. And our girls uh, have grown up in that environment. And so the way we think about it and talk about it is, and we normed this years ago, it was, this is how we do it in our family, you know? And so it may not be for everyone in our family. This is how we, this is how we do this. You are publishing a book called Wait With Me, Meeting God in Loneliness. And providentially, it is being released in the midst of this shelter-in-place pandemic. And the first line of your book says, to be human is to be lonely. And I read this and I was like, oh, yes. And I felt like this sense of truth and a little sad about that being our reality. What prompted you to write this book? A spiritual crisis prompted me to write the book. This is a book that I wrote in 2018, but it reflects uh, a process that I went through that was really spiritually transformative of not quite 10 years earlier, but but it's looking back. And, and so 
at the time I was in my mid thirties, I was a staff director. I had young kids at home. Our home was uh, constantly filled with people. We've got young kids and they've got friends and our, you know, there's Play-Doh everywhere and there's colored paper and everything's a mess. And at the time, Sophia and I were leading in our church, we call them house churches, but um, we were leading a house church, small group, if you will, in our home once a week. And we would have anywhere from 12 to 30 people in our home and, and we'd pray and we'd study the scriptures and people would go home and I would be standing at my kitchen sink washing dishes and I would feel like, I am alone. I feel so unknown. I feel so unloved. I, I don't feel seen, known, loved, and valued. I, does, does anybody get me? Uh, and, and is this what ministry is supposed to be like? Is this what leadership in ministry is supposed to be like? Oh my gosh, this is terrible. There was this old Jesuit uh, spiritual director, He's been a missionary for 40 years. He was in New York City doing spiritual direction. And I was, I said, I'm going to go to Father Ugo. I'm going to go and sit with him and he's going to help me figure this out. He just said, well, to be human is to be lonely. This is the experience of the person around the corner who lives on the street. It's the experience of the person who live, who works in a high rise on Wall Street. It's the experience of people around the world. It's, it was often the experience of Jesus himself. And uh, he said, you can look to me or your ministry, or something else, or your or your religious practice, to make your loneliness go away. Or you could see it as the beginning of God's work in you. And I was so intrigued by that, uh, so intrigued by the idea that um, loneliness wasn't just something that we had to somehow find a way to manage or escape but that it was a context to grow friendship with God uh, was like, it, it led me on this journey, which then became uh, some many years later, this journey that I want to take readers on in the book. I love how that comes out of this personal story and it's your journey. It kind of feels like there's an inherent loneliness in leadership and all of our staff are leaders because you lead and sometimes you're the only one in your position as you lead others. You might be going through the same thing with other people, with your students, but you're kind of the only one, especially if you're the only staff on a campus. I think we use the invitation language a lot, you know, in spiritual direction, what is Jesus inviting you into? But can you spell that out a little bit more. What is the invitation in loneliness? If I'm cheeky, I would say, well, the invitation is to wait with me, the <laughs> which is the title of the book. The title comes from what Jesus says when he's in the moment with his best friends. On the eve of his uh, torture and death, he takes his friends to uh, the garden, and he says to them, he says, I am grieved even to the point of death. Wait with me. I think that the invitation in loneliness, the invitation in this is to begin to see our loneliness as a context to develop a friendship with God. And what it does is, um, is if we approach loneliness as something to avoid, uh, we can actually use God our faith or use our, use our spirituality as a way to avoid God, right? Um, 
And what God is, I think, doing is saying, you're lonely, you're leading. Uh, yes, in this, let's, let's go lean into that and uh, discover what it means to develop a friendship with me. I say all the time in my teaching and preaching that the reward of a life with God is God. To just know the Lord, know friendship with God, and be somebody who's constantly saying, it's about Jesus, it's about what he's done, it's about who he is, and then just be free to take all that energy and put it into mission. When you hang out with Jesus, what do you guys like doing together? I like sitting with Jesus. I created this this uh, white paper of kind of spiritual disciplines for seasons of loneliness. And usually I'm an extrovert. I like to do things. So uh, I like to walk with Jesus. I like to to move. But in this season, because of the weight of the leadership, Jesus has said to me or invited me over and over again, can you just sit in a chair for five minutes three times a day, and let me love you. And so I've been doing that, and it's been great, because for those 15 minutes over the course of a day, I don't need to know the answers. I don't need to make a decision. I don't need to prove that I can lead well. I don't need even to be lovable or feel lovable. I just need to let God love me. And that's been really meaningful. That sounds glorious. Jason, it was so good to talk to you. Thanks for sharing your life, sharing about your leadership, sharing about your book with us. My pleasure. I really enjoy being here. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Let's continue the conversation. We're on Twitter and Instagram at The Art of N1. Email comments, questions, and requests for future topics to artofn at university.org.